You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line this week by himself, just a heart to heart, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, <laughs> how are you doing this week? I'm doing well, Ben. I took a little uh, trip down memory lane on stream this week and played some old school magic chandelier i know you you said it brought back some memories for you yeah definitely played that game when i was a kid and it was sweet to watch you play so for anyone who doesn't know there's like this i think it's now 21 years old i think it came in it came out in 97 there's this uh like magic rpg program called chandelier that's like you're like a person and you have like a bad deck at the start and you can like duel people or buy cards or trade cards or like go on quests like it's an rpg but it's centered around playing a bunch of like mini matches of magic and it kind of holds up. I mean, it's still, it's not like a terrible program and you get to play with some sweet cards. Um, and if anyone's interested, I found a way to download the program for Windows 10 on uh, Gabby Sparks's YouTube channel. So you can check that out. There's like a five minute video on like where to go and how to get it. And it was definitely worth it. It was pretty fun. Uh, how's your week been? You've been, uh, been spring breaking it up. Been spring breaking it up. I got my taxes done. I got my apartment cleaned, played some golf. I had to drive. It's been raining all week. I drove three hours the other day to get out of the rain to go play golf one way. So six hours of driving, four hours of golf, but it was totally worth it. (laughs) That is some dedication right there. Also, that's the most adult spring break ever. Taxes, room cleaning. Well, there's been some, there was also a 15 hour (laughs) stream in there. That's right. That's (laughs) right. A lot of Magic the Gathering. So there was fun to be had as well. Yeah, for sure. So speaking of magic, how have the uh, the anniversary 25 streets been treating you? Uh, they're good. I just recently got out of a 2-1 rut. Uh, so I've now got 28 drafts under my belt, 8 trophies, a 59 and 25 overall record for a 70% win rate. Nice. I have 49 drafts under my belt with 15 trophies. I think I'm somewhere like 5th or 6th place in the... Uh, in the leagues, uh, 98 and 49 records have gone down from last week to a clean 67% win rate. Yeah, you've been crushing it. Yeah, it's been a fun, fun format. We were talking in the pre-show a little bit how I'm, I won't be sad to see it go. I'm a little, it's getting a little tired for me, but I will, will certainly be grinding it out for, for the rest of its time on Magic Online. Yeah, I've been enjoying it. I'm not, I'm not done yet, but I've also done less drafts than you. So, right. Well, what I need else to play with new? Living Death. I need to play with Jace before I, before I'm really done. Yeah, I, ha- I don't think I've even opened Jace yet. I, have, I haven't I even I've... seen Jace on the other side of the battlefield, which I'm not complaining about. But right, yeah, I think I've seen it once. I saw it. In, it was in the finals of my first draft on my opponent's side, but that was it. All right, uh, so we got a pretty sweet episode in store for you all today. I'm excited about. Uh, but before we get into that and the roundtable, we want to shout out some new patrons. So we do have a Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash. Lords of Limited, where you as a listener can give back to the show if you so choose. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated by both me and Ben. Uh, allows us to keep doing what we're doing and let us know that we are loved by you all out there. Um, you get some sweet perks. The base level is access to the Discord. Lords of Limited Discord is the place to be if you want feedback on your decks, on your drafts, on some in-game decisions. If you want to talk to other degenerate, limited grinders like yourself, that's where you want to be. Um, it's a really fantastic spot. It's so hard for me to keep up with these days i like check discord every few hours and there's like six new discussion points and i have to like backlog and and look what everyone's discussing about it's it's really really 
awesome to see that community growing. Uh, you can also get access to our show notes for an episode like this one that you're in store for. You're going to want access to those show notes. And you even get a little pre-show discussion for some higher tier donations. All things really worth it. All things really appreciated by us. And you get shouted out the first time you donate to the show. So we want to welcome Bill, Lance, and Joshua. Thank you all so much for supporting this week. We really, really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Cannot say thank you enough. It's really cool, you know, when we release an episode last week, like with Andrew Cunio, uh, just to be able to see patrons in the Discord, like say this episode was awesome. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So to everybody that's a patron, uh, thanks a ton. And thanks for telling us that you like the show. We really, really appreciate you. Yes. Compliments are appreciated. <laughs> All right, Ben. So Masters 25, there's a lot of different directions we can go down. And I thought this draft that I had was particularly interesting. So we're going to go... A few picks deep here. Are you ready to take a seat at the round table? I am. Excellent. All right. So pack one, pick one. You see the following options. Sift, three and a blue for the sorcery. Draw three, then discard a card. Ambassador Oak, three and a green for the three, three that brings a one, one elf warrior creature token along with it. Skeletonize, a great removal spell, some <laughs> might say. Four and a red for the instant. Deal three damage to a creature when that creature dealt damage dies this turn. You create a one, one skeleton with black regenerate. Regrowth, one and a green for the sorcery return target card from your graveyard to your hand. And Twisted A-Bomb, five and a black for the 5-3 with black regenerate and also has swamp cycling for two. Yeah, this is a pretty weak pack here. I would not be excited if this were my pack one, pick one, if I were sitting down to a draft. Um, and I can't imagine you were either. No. For me, I would narrow it down. Skeletonizes out despite the fact that it's great. Yes. All right. That's fair. Ambassador Oak's also out. So I would qu pretty quickly narrow it down to Sift, Regrowth, Twisted Abomination. Mm -hmm. And I think Regrowth is probably the most intrinsically powerful card if your deck is great. Like, I think the, the better your deck is, the better Regrowth gets. Mm -hmm. But I'm not particularly looking to be green these days. Mm. You and Dustin and Sasha kind of have me on the blue-black train. So I'd be looking at Twisted Abomination and Sift. And I think of those two cards, Twisted Abomination is more powerful and more flexible. So I think I'd like to start my draft off with a Twisted A-Bomb. Yeah, I think all three of those are defensible. And this is something that I've sort of started to embrace in this format, which is like, this is not quite like cube, where I think preferences really can take hold of a draft. Like, there are no really like, quote unquote, right or wrong picks in cube, because the cards are all powerful. And you can just like, kind of draft the deck that you want. Like, it's hard to figure out like, oh, well, this seed, this color is open, because like the packs aren't seeded that way. And I think a 25 a little less so. But similarly, I think you can if you want to draft a style of deck in this format, as long as it's a viable style of deck, I think you can get there and you can sort of like decide to go that way. And you're also never going to be short on playables as we've discussed in in the, the prior episodes about this format so you can sort of decide to take a stance in a deck and then if you get a few picks deep and you find that that's not where you want to be that's fine you can do something else because you're going to get playables so uh, with all that said i have liked i, I do like the blue black decks for sure um, but i've also liked green decks quite a bit um, and i think regrowth is as you said, the most intrinsically powerful card. And it's also the most unique card here. Like, I feel like if I want a Twisted A-Bomb for my deck, I'm going to get one. If I want a Sift for my deck, I'm probably going to get one. But Regrowth is not a kind of card that you can can pick up if you want it. So I, I grabbed that here. But I think all, all three of those are certainly pack one, pick one defensible cards in this pack, at least. I agree. I think the other thing that's worth noting about the format is that I think you can kind of force a little bit if you get some premium cards. Yeah. Uh, like even if your lane's not 
totally open like that there's just such a depth of playables that like if you have two ravenous chupacabras and black's not really open like you're gonna get there on black if you want to play those two ravenous chupacabras i don't necessarily think you have to be flexible as much so as you do in other formats to end up with a good deck assuming you start with a couple like two three premium cards in that color that's not really open i totally agree i think that also has to do with not only the depth of playables but how good the mana fixing is in the format all right, moving on to pack one, pick two. So I've got a regrowth. You've got a twisted A-bomb under your belt. This will be tough to track, listeners, because I think Ben and I are going to diverge pretty quickly here. Uh, so in pack one, pick two, you're looking at the following cards. There's a Nizumi Cutthroat. That's one on a black for the 2-1 Rat Warrior with Fear and the luxurious ability of not being able to block. Chandra's Outrage, two red red for the instant, deal four to a creature and two to that creature's controller. Swords to Plowshares, premium removal, single white for the instant, exile target creature, its controller gains life equal to its power. And Urbis Protector, four white white for the one one that brings a four four white angel creature token with flying along with it. All good options. I think Swords to Plowshares is head and shoulders above the rest and would snap it up here. Yeah, not much to discuss here. Uh, It's probably like, actually, would you pick Swords? Or Ravenous Chupacabra first? I would pick Chupacabra over Swords. Isn't that upsetting? It is upsetting. <laughs> over the best removal spell of all time. Yeah. And it like this stupid thing just came out in the last set. And it's like better than Swords to Plowshares, at least in this format. I think so. Yeah, I agree. Um, so we're both on Swords to Plowshares here. Not much to discuss. Moving on to pack one, pick three. Uh, you've got a Kindle. That's one and a red for the instant that deals X damage to target creature or player where X is two plus the number of cards named Kindle in all graveyards. Disfigure, single black for the instant for target creature gets neg two, neg two until end of turn. And Willbender. Every time Amorph is on the battlefield and the opponent's got an island, everyone says, it's always Willbender. Uh, this is one and a blue for the one, two, but you're never paying that. You're paying it three mana for it as a face down morph creature. And it has one and a blue unmorph. And when it's turned face up, you change the target of target spell or ability with a single target. Yeah, these are all three strong cards here. I'm a little down on Kindle at this point in the format. Me too. Disfigure, though, I am not down on. Having early cheap interaction in black to stop some of the aggressive starts from the aggro decks, I think is very, very strong. I like Disfigure quite a bit. Willbender, I also like quite a bit. I've been playing with it. I have found, like, I've played with Willbender, I think, in my last three drafts, and I had not much at the start of the format. It does feel kind of hard to me at times to leave up two blue mana while you're developing your board. Like, I don't think you're really using that ability until, like, turn six, seven, eight, nine, like, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm not... I think Willbender is powerful, but I like Disfigure better. Disfigure is always going to do what it's going to do, and it's going to be great every single time. So I'm on Disfigure here over Willbender, I think, but it's close. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder when like the best time to maximize Willbender is in the format. I, I think I've often found myself going like three drop, four drop, and then this is my five drop as a morph. And then I have the ability kept up basically the rest of the game. Like usually then like maybe on turn six, I like play a ghost ship. If I'm curving out with lands and then I still have two mana up, that sort of thing. I really like Willbender a lot. And in decks that like blue decks that sometimes have trouble dealing with creatures once they're on the board, other than like mana war to bounce them back and then counter them. I found that Willbender does a pretty good impression of removal um, and being able to two for one your opponent when they go and cast their removal spell and you go, no, 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 and then redirect it somewhere else. But Disfigure is, you're right, like that's just like going to do its thing all the time and doesn't require any setup cost. And that is probably the more responsible pick. But again, in sort of like the way that I took Regrowth, I took the more like higher ceiling card, I guess, in Willbender here. But uh, I think both picks are certainly defensible. Moving on to pick four, see the following cards, Geist of the Moors, the 
Amaz A25 Invitational card. One white, white for the 3-1 Spirit with Flying. There's a Blightning. One black, red for the Sorcery. Blightning deals three damage to target player. That player discards two cards. Can be redirected with Willbender. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty savage. Ghost Ship, two blue, blue for the 2-4 Flyer with triple blue Regenerate. And uh, Utopia Sprawl, single green for the Aura, Enchant Forest. And as Utopia Sprawl comes into play, you choose a color. And when that forest is tapped, you also add a mana of the chosen color to your mana pool. Yeah, so I'm currently, I've got two black cards and a white card in Swords to Plowshears. I'm currently going to narrow this down to Geist of the Moors versus Ghost Ship. I think in a vacuum, I like Ghost Ship more than I like Geist of the Moors. But I do also have the Swords to Plowshears. And I think Geist of the Moors and Ghost Ship are pretty close in power level. And so I think I would land on Geist of the Moors here just as a nod to sticking with white for my Swords to Plowshares for the moment. So I think I'm going to go Geist of the Moors over Ghost Ship. Yeah, I have currently a Regrowth, a Swords to Plowshares, and a Willbender. And I think if I'm sort of like bobbing and weaving here, I really like Utopia Sprawl. I think Utopia Sprawl and Arbor Elf are two of the most powerful things you can do on turn one, just because like they ramp you pretty fast when you're in not aggressive decks. And I really like Utopia Sprawl's ability to ramp and fix on turn one and give me access to Swords to Plowshares in this deck. So I, I grab Utopia Sprawl here, um, but certainly with your path, Geist of the Moors, it makes sense to me. Pack one, pick five, see the following cards. My boy Arbor Elf, single green for the 1-1 one, one Elf that taps the untapped target forest. Ghost Chip, that's the two blue blue, two four flyer with Regenerate. Lunark Mantle, one and a white for the Aura Enchant Creature. Enchanted Creature gets plus two plus two and has one sacrifice of permanent. This creature gains flying until end of turn. And Hordling Outburst, though we haven't really been on the red train yet. One red red for the sorcery to put three one one goblin creature tokens onto the battlefield. Yeah, this is close for me here. So the the two cards that I'm looking at are Ghost Ship and Lunark Mantle. So we just saw a, a second Ghost Ship prior to this, and Ghost Ship's really strong. I take that as a blue signal. However, Lunark Mantle is also sticking out to me. I keep losing to these aggressive black-white decks that are playing like Squadron Hawks and Lunark Mantle and Zulaport Cutthroat, and they feel very, very strong, and I've not gotten a chance to play them much, and I think it's mostly because I'm not taking Lunark Mantle highly enough, which sounds strange. Like, if you'd have told me that yeah. at the start of the format, I would have laughed at you, but I think Lunark Mantle is actually like a real threat in this format, especially when you're putting it on things like Squadron Hawk that didn't actually cost you a card. I think I would take a flyer on Lunark Mantle here over the Ghost Ship, although I think the probably the responsible pick for what I've got going on is Ghost Ship. But I think I would take a flyer on Lunark Mantle. I don't... I, I think I agree with everything you said except for Ghost Ship being a blue signal. I've seen these go pretty late, and they wheel, I feel like, often enough that... It's a good card, don't get me wrong, I definitely like it. But I think one, the four drop slot in this format generally can get kind of clogged, especially in blue when you have Ghost Ship and Sift at common. That I don't know if I consider Ghost Ship like a blues, like, oh man, I'm seeing a pick five Ghost Ship, that means it's open. Whereas like something like a pick five counterspell or Mana War would certainly be a, a tip for me. Yeah, I, I could get behind that. That makes sense to me. I, of course, with taking Utopia Sprawl last, I'm going to follow that up with an Arbor Elf here. And now I've got Arbor Elf, Utopia Sprawl, and Regrowth, and probably looking to be some some form of base green and splish splashing around for the rest of the goodies. Pick six, you see the following cards. There's another Sift, the four mana, draw three, discard a card. There's an Elvish Aberration, five and a green for the four five uh, that can tap to add triple green to your mana pool and has Forest Cycling for two. And a Savannah Lions, single white for the two one. 
Yeah, I think I, after picking Lunark Mantle over Ghost Ship last pick, I think I'm really sold on wanting to be white aggro and hoping to pair my black with it that I've got so far. So mm-hmm. I think I'm going to jam Savannah Lions here over the Sift and look to draft this white black aggressive deck. Nice. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sticking with my green train and taking the Forest Cycler in the Elvish Aberration. Pack one, pick seven. Uh, we've got a promise of Bunre. That's two and a white for the enchantment. Whenever a creature you control is put into a graveyard from play, you sacrifice promise of Bunre. And if you do, you create four one, one colorless spirit creature tokens. There's a Griffin protector, three and a white for the two, three Griffin with flying. And whenever another creature ETBs, Griffin protector gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And another sift three and a blue for the draw three discard. Yeah, Griffin Protector just keeps going up and up and up for me. Interesting. It just feels so strong. Every time my opponent plays it, I just am cursing inside my head. It's really scary. And I think Promise of Bunray, unfortunately, is slightly better. So I'm going to take Promise here, but I am happy to see a Griffin Protector, and I'm happy to have Griffin Protector in any white deck I'm drafting. I forget who it was. I just remember thinking it was like a voice of authority. So it was probably either Dustin or Sasha (laughs) in chat telling me like why, like you guys seem to like Griffin Protector a lot, like you and me, but this person was down on it. So I think that might be a, might've been a Sasha comment. Maybe you're just getting lumped in with me then. I'm dragging you down. My (laughs) my bad gameplay, my bad card evaluation. (laughs) My idea, I like think of Griffin Protector as a good card, but maybe it's, maybe I'm overvaluing it, but I agree. I like the card a lot. I definitely like it with when you have ways to abuse it. Like, I don't think it's just good on its own as like usually being a four mana three, four flyer when you're attacking with it. But like, if you have ways to abuse it, if you have white main lions some cloud shifts or like ways to make multiple creatures in one, one go, I think it's really, really strong, but I agree. Promise of Bunray is so good. And I've already got a swords to plowshares that I'm looking to splash and green white is a totally fine deck to be in as well. Like I don't need to get like super fancy. Um, so I, I just grabbed that here. And then pack one, pick eight. I think we're also probably going to agree here. There's a squadron hawk. That's one on a white for the one, one bird with flying that when it ETBs, you can search your library for up to three copies of the card and put it into your hand. There's a stampede driver green for the one, one with one and a green tap, discard a card from your hand and creatures you control get plus one, plus one and gain trample until end of turn. And a death's head buzzard. That's one black, black for the two, one bird with flying. And when it dies, all creatures get neg one, neg one until end of turn. Yeah, I would be slamming Squadron Hawk here. I'd be pretty excited to see it eighth pick because I I would hope that means that everybody else passed on it mm-hmm. and I would get all the future Squadron Hawks. But it, Squadron Hawk, I think, is one of the linchpins of this white-black aggro deck. And I'd be thrilled to pick it up here, pick eight. Yeah, I also grabbed a Squadron Hawk here as a nod to everything you said and moved on with my draft. This, this draft ended up not being great. I think I ended up opening a Ravenous Chupacabra in pack two and then tried to like jam that in there and ended up with some sort of like loose Sultai deck not getting fixing for the swords to plowshares and the lightning bolt that I also picked up in pack two. Um, I was hoping to be able to like splash around, grab a cultivate or a crows and tusker or something to make my mana a little easier. But as it stood, there was only the utopia sprawl that I had for fixing. I wonder what it would have looked like for you with your white black deck. Cause you would have gotten a chupacabra and been thrilled about it. Ooh, so I think your yeah, deck would have been, sweet. your deck would have ended up better than mine. I think. At this point, I know I'm white. I'm not convinced I'm black yet. I'm certain I'm some sort of a white aggressive deck, maybe even hopefully mono white, but white black is great too. Yeah, for sure. All right. So we're going to move into our main topic today, which is, as the title of the episode has given away, we're going to talk about the value of a card uh, and certainly in limited in particular. So for me, a game of magic is all about trading resources and those resources can be cards. They can be 
tempo, they can be life, like there's different ways to think about resources. Um, but for, for today's episode, we're going to focus on on the actual cards that you get to draw, right? Each player only gets to draw one new resource per turn. And so to maximize the effectiveness of your own versus your opponents is often going to lead to victory. This is not to say that ending a game being up for resources on your opponent, like being like, oh man, I drew four more cards than my opponent. That doesn't necessarily mean you won. You might've been spinning your wheels or dirtling a little too much. Anything like that is possible. But tracking how your resources stack up against your opponents is I think a very important skill of in-game play and also an important skill of drafting. I think you're especially good at that. Like oftentimes when I'm streaming and you're hanging out in chat, like I'll get what feels like blown out and I'll, I'll be saying, oh, God, that was awful. You know, I just got wrecked. And you'll say, no, it's fine. It's just a two for two. <laughs> yeah, I track this a lot. And I think it also is because a lot of the decks that I like to draft often like start the games from behind and are trying to stabilize. And those decks especially are all about like if you're playing a mid-range or control deck versus an aggro deck or an aggro mid-range deck, you are really trying to like grind out their resources until you can stabilize and take control of the game. And so it's really important to be like, okay, how, how are these cards matching up? And so, yeah, I, I do track that a lot. So we're, we talk about the phrase two for one a lot in Magic. And I think it's important to just sort of like ABCs this thing. Like, what does that mean? It quite literally means two cards from the opponent for one of my cards. And if that happens a number of times over a game, you are going to have a significant advantage over your opponent. Like think of a classic example of two creatures facing off in combat. Your opponent goes to cast giant growth on their creature. In response, you cast lightning bolt to kill the creature before the giant growth resolves. So you have traded one card, your lightning bolt, for two cards, the creature and the giant growth that ended up fizzling because the creature it was targeting died. So we think about two-for-ones like that, and there are a lot of other ways to think about getting two-for-ones, and we're going to look at that in depth today. So how, how do we think about a card's worth of value? There are a number of ways that a card can create a card's worth of value in Limited. What's, what's one of these ways, Ben? Yeah, the first of these, I think, is a card that enters the battlefield and then replaces itself, so it draws you a card. So some examples of that would be Dust Legion Zealot, so one in a black for the 1-1 one, one, that when it ETBs, you draw a card and lose a life. Legion Conquistador, the two and a white for the two, two that can search up like maybe two, three, four other copies of Legion Conquistador out of your deck. That can give you way more than a two for one potentially on how those line up against your opponent's creatures or uh, the explore mechanic. Let's say you play a Siren Lookout, two and a blue for the one, two flyer, and you draw a land off your explore trigger. So you've got that one, two flyer on the battlefield and you've got the land in your hand. So those creatures have already replaced themselves. So you can be a lot freer in how you trade these off with your opponent's cards. So if you can manage to trade, for example, let's say in anniversary 25 if you can manage to trade your dust legion zealot for a savannah lions you're ahead a card there you already got a two for one because your dust legion zealot drew you a card and then you traded for one of your opponent's actual cards their two one savannah lions so you can be a lot freer in how you use these cards that have replaced themselves upon entering the battlefield you can use them to help you double block to kill a bigger creature or you can use them to chump block so essentially like they drew you a card and gained you four life I mean, the dream is obviously right what I outlined earlier, where you trade Dust Legion Zealot for a Savannah Lions. And if you're on the other side of the battlefield, if you're the person with the Savannah Lions staring this down, staring down a Dust Legion Zealot, it feels really bad, right? Because you know your opponent has already sort of blanked your Savannah Lions and invalidated it and pretty much locked up that two for one. 
Yeah, for sure. That is something to be really aware of. I think like aware of it on your own side, but also aware of how when you're on the opposing side, how do you match up your 2-1 with their 1-1 that's already replaced itself? I think another way to think about this is cards that maybe don't affect the board, like not a creature that ETBs and replaces itself, but a card that does provide two or more cards to replace itself. So in the current set, we can think about Cultivate. That's two and a green for the sorcery that finds two lands out of your library, puts one into play tapped and one into your hand. So that's a two for one, right? You're replacing Cultivate with two lands. There's Sift. That's three and a blue. Draw three cards and discard a card. So Sift At the end of everything, after the end of the drawing three and discarding a card, you are replacing Sift with two cards. So you're getting two cards for one. So these are, I think, a little trickier to evaluate than the clean sort of two for ones because they bring the idea of tempo into play, which we'll we'll look at with resources that aren't worth a card. We'll look at a tempo down the line. But basically, if you have the time to cast a spell like this than Sift, it often feels better than a two for one because it implies that you have a stable board or that both you and your opponent have undeveloped boards. And you're now getting a pretty big advantage in terms of either ramping with cult or card selection and card draw with sift and that can snowball in terms of your ability to impact the board in future turns either you're now a land ahead of your opponent and a card ahead of your opponent or you're now multiple cards ahead of your opponent and you're able to sort of sculpt your turns a little better but the flip side is if you're under pressure or if you need to impact the board in a a meaningful way these are not you can't just be like ah cultivate two for one because these are worse you are now like spending a turn to do nothing the classic as amaz would say a a three mana zero zero (laughs) i'm so glad that that's going to be a part of our vernacular now yeah i like i mean like as much as i like cultivate i see what he's saying and that does make a lot of sense especially in this this scenario like if you're getting beaten down by an opponent who's going like one drop two drop three drop you don't have time for this. And now this card that you've put in your deck because you think it's it's powerful and it creates a source of card advantage and ramp does not do any of those things for you because all of that is moot when you're dead, right? You, you, when you don't have the time to then cast the spells that you're ramping into. Yeah. Other types of like sort of more than a, a card's worth of value, you get creatures that bring along a buddy with them. So the most common form of this is bringing along a 1-1 token. So there's cards like Jungleborn Pioneer, 2 and a green for the 2-2 Merfolk that brings along a 1-1 Hexproof Merfolk with it uh, from Rivals. There's Ambassador Oak in Anniversary 25, the 3 and a green for the 3-3 that brings along a 1-1 friend. Herbis Protector from Anniversary 25, 4 white white for the 1-1 one, one that brings along a 4-4 four, four Flying Angel token. Uh, so that's sort of the reverse there. I mean, you're mostly interested in the 4-4 four, four Flying token, but... Still has the 1-1 one, one body along with it. So these cards give good rates for the stats. So Jungleborn Pioneer is 3 mana for 3-3 three, three spread across 2 bodies. And I think it's important to note that spread across 2 bodies is generally an advantage. Would you agree with that? I would. It's like tough to know. It feels like I don't know when it like starts to to get muddy or, or where it is. But I think that the blanket statement is yes. Like 1 and a white for 2 one ones. Like, is that better than a 2-2? Sometimes. But I feel like as you get bigger, like four mana for two 2-2s is generally better than, I think, one 4-4. Like, we think of Crested Herdcaller. Like, the 2-3-3 Tramplers is so good. Um, so, yeah, spread across two bodies is is often much, much better than than just a single body. And I think part of that is it gives protection from your opponent's removal spells. And it is a lot easier to leverage those two separate bodies into like managing to trade those your one card that came in two bodies for two cards from your opponents, which is ultimately what you're trying to do. So if you trade Pioneer and your Hexproof, your Hexproof Merfolk that comes along with it for a 3-3, you didn't get two for one. 
So you're yes. those both of those cards came together, right? It's important to keep that keep that in your brain. So you traded your three mana three three essentially that happened to be broken up in a two 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 and a one one for your opponent's three three. But the dream again is if you manage to trade your pioneer off for a two two, you've got this half of a card left over. So a lot of times you'll hear us on stream refer to, well, we we have half of a card left or a, like a one one flying spirit token. You know, limited resources always calls like three fourths of a card or close to a card. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to just leverage out incremental advantage from all of these cards that bring along tokens with them and trying to maximize the value out of those one one bodies or two two bodies yeah for sure similar to cards like dusk legion zealot or legion conquistador cards that provide two effects maybe not necessarily the draw card but something else so a creature plus an etb so the dream things like a ravenous chupacabra two black black for the two two etbs destroys a creature that's like a very clean two for one right comes into play kills a thing and then leaves behind a two two body Mana War from Anniversary 25, two and a blue for the 2-2 when it ATBs, it bounces a creature. Sailor of Means, this is probably like the lowest level of like an ETB trigger, but this is still a creature that is providing something. It's giving you a treasure token. So it's two and a blue for the 1-4, makes a treasure. So a, a treasure is like not worth a card, probably not even close, but it does provide something for fixing, for ramping, for getting you towards the city's blessing. It is giving you two things for the price of one card. Uh, we talked about the explore trigger. So if you're either playing uh, the siren lookout, you get two in a blue. You're either getting a one, two plus a land, a clean two for one or a one or two, three plus a scry, which is also good and maybe not worth a card, but it is providing some form of value. So these are often some of the more powerful spells in limited creatures that affect the board with their bodies, but also provide value in other ways by killing a creature or bouncing a creature or giving you a land or a scry. Once they enter the battlefield, they have given whatever benefit they have to give and are now just vanilla creatures oftentimes. So consider when dealing with these creatures how your resources are matching up. Did your opponent play Ravenous Chupacabra and kill something and now you're using a moment of craving on it? Well, that's a clean two for one in your opponent's favor, right? You've used a moment of craving and the creature that they killed to trade with their ravenous chupacabra. This may be the best course of action for you in the game state, but it is worth tracking that like once the creature is on the battlefield, it has relevance in terms of what it has done to you in previous turns of the game. So it's not just, in my mind, yes, it represents a 2-2. And if you have to kill the 2-2 for whatever reason in the game, you got to do that. But I think it's also worth thinking like, well, it's not just that. It represents a bit more. Mana War represents a loss in tempo. An Explore Trigger represents your opponent gained a land. So it's still a two-for-one. Right? It has replaced itself in terms of a card's worth of a resource. Um, and I think this is something that people tend to lose track of as, as turns go on or as game states get a bit more complicated. But I think it's, it's still something that can impact your decision-making in terms of how you're going to maximize your resources. Yeah, there's also types of cards that are not intrinsically worth a card, but provide maybe either a tempo advantage or can be leveraged to sort of, you know, get a full card's worth of value out of them. And the first type we're going to take a look at is bounce spells. On their own, they can be like usually the cheapest way in blue generally to interact with a creature uh, to push through some damage maybe on your end to leverage tempo or like if your opponent is playing with auras, so like let's say in triple Ixalan, one with the wind, bounce spells were your best defense against a one with the wind. So depending on how you set them up, you can either just, you know, get sort of a, a zero for one. So where you trade your your bounce spell for 
bouncing a creature to your opponent's hand just strictly for tempo. And I think generally you're trying not to do that unless you're going to win the game. But mostly you're looking for a spot where you can actually manage to trade that bounce spell and get a one for one. And if you do that, they can be really powerful because then you're getting the card for card plus you're getting tempo. So the most common ways to do that is if your opponent has cast an aura like a one with the wind or a swashbuckling on their creature and you bounce their creature and then the aura goes to the graveyard. The other way to really do it is if you've got good blocks, bounce spells are best on defense as far as leveraging them for two for ones. Mm -hmm. Well, not really two for ones, but one for ones plus tempo, like sort of the tempo is the two for one. One and a quarter for one or something. Yeah, one and a half for one. So like you've got good blocks and your opponent has bad attacks. So they attack into your, your good defense and they're planning on using a combat trick to punch through and if you've got that mana for the bounce spell up when they go to use that combat trick you can trade your bounce spell for their combat trick and get their creature back to your hand which is a pretty significant edge in your favor that you've picked up there yeah for sure on the reverse side of that we can look at pump spells so a pump spell on its own is not worth a card right you're not putting giant growth in your deck to like go to attacks your opponent says no blocks and you go giant growth three extra damage like that can be the case if you're trying to push through a few extra points of damage to close out the game but more often it's going to be used in combat to outclass an opposing creature or to save your own creature from a damage-based removal spell so you're not looking to just like use that giant growth for three damage because you wouldn't be playing that like we don't play lava spikes in limited that's like an old card single red for sorcery deal three damage to an opponent you're not doing that cards that just deal damage to an opponent are not often worth a card on their own you want to use that to leverage it to either like you're trading with the removal spell by saving your creature or you're trading with opposing creatures by setting up unfavorable attacks or blocks for them, and then you blow them out in combat with the creature by making your creatures in combat larger. The last type of card in this category is like a Lava Axe type effect or a Trumpet Blast type effect. So a Lava Axe being like direct damage to your opponent's face and Trumpet Blast being like pump your team going wide. So similar to why our discussion regarding Browbeat uh, earlier being a bad card, you know, I had memories of that card being good <laughs> when I was a kid, but as soon as it was in my hand when I was playing games of Anniversary 25, I felt so miserable about the fact that I had a card that like just did nothing. Like it was essentially going to be when I cast it, five damage to my opponent and do nothing to affect the board in a relevant way. And you just can't afford to put cards like that in your deck unless they're going to kill your opponent. Like it's only relevant if it gets your opponent to zero. Otherwise, it was completely irrelevant and did nothing. So your opponent would be happy. You know, I think if you could start the game at 15 life and choose to have your opponent mulligan to six, you would do that 100% of the time. Maybe even like 10 life to go to five. Trading cards for five life at a time is just not worth it. Um, so hence you don't want to run lava axe type effects in unless they're in the most aggressive of decks and trumpet blast you know generally you're trying so that's two in a red plus two plus o to your team at instant speed generally you're trying to use those in a go wide strategy to leverage extra damage but you really have to have a wide board built out before you're really starting to get a full cards worth of value out of that trumpet blast if it's literally just like do six extra damage to your opponent that's getting very close to lava axe territory there but when it really turns into a cards worth of value is if you've got four or five six creatures on the battlefield and it's allowing some of your creatures to trade up in combat with your opponent so you have to be careful about putting lava axes or trumpet blast type cards in your deck and you need to have a very specific reason to do so 
For sure. You bringing up browbeat made me think of a kind of two for one that we didn't talk about previously that I want to bring up now, which is two for ones that sort of have your opponents say or they get say in, in how they're going to trade their resources. Yeah, Punisher cards, right? Yeah, Punisher cards. Well, and also discard effects. So most discard effects, there's often like a three mana discard two effect in limited. It's called Mind Rot, the classic one. That's two and a black sorcery target player discards two cards. Um, we've got the like Arterial Flow. That's the vampire version from Rick's the one black black they discard two and then if you have a vamp you drain two life from your opponent but these effects are you know two for ones but they don't always line up that way so sometimes when your opponent has six cards in hand and you go and cast this you're probably often getting like a land and a spell but so the more resources they have the more choice they have over minimizing this card's effect on their hand the dream is when they have two cards left in hand and you just fire it off and you get like their two most expensive best spells. That's also not the, the case a lot of the time. And sometimes you might draw it when they have one card left in hand. And so then you're just getting a one for one. Uh, we can also think back to Hour of Devastation for these these true Punisher effects. Um, there's Torment of Venom at Common, which was two black black for an instant target creature gets three minus one minus one counters on it. And then they also had the choice of lose three life, discard a card or sack a non-land permanent. Now, that sounds like a two-for-one, but they're getting the choice, right? So they're going to pick the thing that you least want them to do. So probably most of the time, they're just going to lose three life. And as we were talking about before with Lava Axe effects or Lava Spike effects, three life loss is not really worth a card. Now, it's something. It's something tacked on to that removal spell. Um, but I think it's important to track how that affects your opponent's board or hand. And if they do end up discarding a card or sacrificing a permanent, how does that then change the calculus of things in the future? You've gotten a two for one off your Torment of Venom. So how does that change the way you're going to match up your resources in future turns? Now, we've been talking a lot about tempo moving into evaluating how you're trading your resources with your opponent, right? We're talking about using life, using tempo, using cards. So how does tempo factor in to trading one for ones or two for ones? So the the most classic example here uh, is one that happened in a recent format quite a bit, Triple Ixalan, Contract Killing versus Dive Down. So Contract Killing is a three black black, destroy target creature, make two treasure tokens, and dive down the single blue instant. Target creature gets plus O, plus three, and hexproof. The first time I cast Dive Down on my creature in response to Contract Killing, I felt like a god. <laughs> it was <laughs> unbelievable. So that represents a significant tempo advantage, right? Because presumably, and and like just relevant to the board state. So you, you traded one for one, right? So that looks fine on face value, but it's really, really bad for the person that's casting the contract killing because presumably whatever they're casting contract killing on is a threat to them, right? They wouldn't be spending a premium removal spell to remove something that wasn't going to kill them in a hurry. So not only did you get, like, it's important to look at one-for-ones in terms of mana advantage. Not only did you get a significant mana advantage on your opponent, so presumably you were able to double spell, like you cast something on your turn, plus held up that one mana for dive down, and then cast a second spell in a turn cycle. So you traded one for five on mana advantage, which is a huge tempo boost in your favor, but you also saved a premium threat on your side of the battlefield. So it's important also when we're tracking card advantage, and yes, you want to try to get two-for-ones and things like that, it's also important to try to maximize getting one for ones in your favor as much as possible and leveraging 
mana advantage is one of the biggest ways to do that. You can also boil it down simpler to like, you know, a two, two, two mana, two, two versus a four mana, two, two. If you manage to trade your two mana, two, two for your opponent's four mana, two, two, you're, you've got a two mana mana advantage, right? So that's another way you can sort of start to track a card's worth of value. If you're equal on one for one, did you get a mana advantage in terms of your opponent? And dive down versus contract killing is one of the most brutal in terms of tempo or mana advantage. There's a card that is played in Constructed a lot and also uh, in Cube a lot, uh, Remand, which is one in a blue for like counter target spell, return that spell to its owner's hand and you draw a card. For me, at least, this was a really hard card to evaluate. It took me a long time before I figured out why this card was so good, because on face value, you're not countering the spell. They're going to just replay it next turn. So what's the big deal? And yeah, I know Remand replaces itself. I'm not like down a card, but it doesn't feel good. But that's because I wasn't using it to its most effectiveness. And its maximum effectiveness is what we're talking about here with Dive Down. We're like, you're trading a two mana spell in Remand for their Grave Titan, right? They're tapping out on turn six for their big bomb in cube. And you go remand that and i've already done something else with the rest of my mana so you're getting a huge tempo advantage there and you're not down a card yes time walk draw card right time walk draw card exactly and that is really really powerful even though you're not like dealing with the threat immediately you're just getting such a huge tempo advantage and tempo i think is a really important thing to to think about when we're we're talking about these one for ones do you know when i learned how when remand was good when marshall sutcliffe shout out to you and limited resources and your blue black tempo deck the first time i drafted his blue black tempo deck on cube and i was like i had you know a phantasmal bear in play i had vampire lacerator in play i'd counterspelled something from my opponent and i was holding up remand and i was like oh man this is awesome (laughs) Reman is so good. Yeah, it's a great card. There's another phrase thrown around with two-for-ones, which is a virtual two-for-one. So what does that mean when we talk about a virtual two-for-one when you're defending a creature? And that's when you're blanking an opposing creature or multiple opposing creatures on your opponent's side of the battlefield. So let's say you have a 1-3 flyer and your opponent has a 2-2 and a 2-1. So if we assume that you're at a reasonable life total, this could be early, right? They go turn one, two, one, turn two, 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 you go turn two, one, three. That seems pretty reasonable. Your one, three is basically two for oneing both of those creatures, right? You, you've traded, you're, you're virtually trading your one, three for the two opposing creatures because they don't have attacks, right? They can attack with the two, two, and you'll bounce off the one, three and nothing will happen. They can attack with both and you'll just block the one three, the two one with your one three. You'll take two damage. You'll trade a little bit of your life resource for a full card on your opponent's side in their two one. So they don't have any good attacks here. So you have not actually traded your one three for the two two and the two one. They're not all in the graveyard, but they're essentially blanked. So it's especially important when sideboarding to match your cards up well against your opponent to try and make their cards worth less. So you can think about things like that. All right, so do they have a lot of small creatures? How can I bring in a bunch of large toughness creatures to blank as many of those as possible? Or did they bring in a naturalize effect for my one artifact that I have? Well, you can maybe take that. Can you afford to take that artifact out and essentially blank a card in their deck, like make them mulligan when they draw that naturalize. We've talked about that a bit before on sideboarding episodes, but you have a lot of options in sideboarding to match your resources up against your opponent's cards and even in main deck to create these sort of virtual two-for-ones. Yeah, I think there's also, you can talk about virtual two-for-ones or multiple-for-ones as the aggro player. So what you're trying to do, your way to get card advantage on your opponent as an aggro player is to double spell 
more times than your opponent or have cast more spells in the game than your opponent. So Amaz, when we had Amaz on, Amaz was talking about, you know, he really has this philosophy that he tries to end the game with zero cards in his hand. And if he's done that, he feels like he's played a perfect game. So as an aggro player, if you manage to win, you know, let's say you've got one or two cards in your hand and your opponent has five cards in their hand at the end of the game, when you get their life total to zero, you essentially like three or four for one your opponent because you used three more of your cards than your opponent did and you do that by putting you know everybody knows about a curve and trying to double spell that's the reason those things are good is because it gives you virtual card advantage as as the offensive player now you outlined this really cool thing about looking at cards in different archetypes to make sure they give you the most value in that particular archetype so we're tracking a lot of different things here we're tracking life totals we're tracking tempo we're tracking card for card trading but these are not all created equal in different kinds of decks so getting a card's worth of value starts even before gameplay right you only get 23 card slots in your deck so you want to make sure that each of those 23 cards is going to be worth a card or more or works well with other cards in your deck so you are crafting a game plan you're crafting maybe a, a style of deck and archetype in the format and things are are not going to match up the same way in in different kinds of decks so what, what does a, a two one for one mana look like in different kinds of decks in limited so the three types of decks we're going to take a look at here and slot these cards against are aggro mid-range and control and we're going to look at these cards and see if they pull their weight in each of these archetypes as a full cards worth of value so the first one we're going to take a look at is a two one vanilla for one does this pull its weight as a card in aggro? Yes, absolutely, because the body lets you pressure your opponent and its cheap cost either allows you to deploy something on turn one to get ahead of your opponent, or it's going to let you maybe double spell on turn three with a two drop and this one drop. Both of those things, either getting out on the board on turn one or double spelling early in the game, are very, very strong in aggro and are going to let you leverage some of that virtual card advantage we talked about there. In mid-range, it's not great. I would generally hope to not put a 2-1 for 1 in my mid-range decks, but it's fine. Uh, it could potentially lead you to like a randomly aggressive start out of your, your mid-range deck if you curve out like 1, 2, 3, 4 and get lucky. Um, but it's probably not an integral part of your game plan in your mid-range deck. So the best case scenario is probably like with your 2-1, assuming you don't curve out, is trading with an opposing 2-drop. So you're really trying to leverage that 1-mana 2-1 into like playing defense against your opposing 2-drop or attacking it into an opposing two drop and getting a trade that way and just getting it out like i think you're pretty happy to get a card's worth of value out of that two one uh in mid-range and in control you would definitely not i think want to put a two one for one in your main deck unless you were absolutely desperate for some defensive speed it's just not worth it doesn't do enough towards advancing your game plan so the only reason it would be in a control deck is for the purpose of keeping you alive so i think i would relegate a two one for one as strictly sideboard and i would bring that in against the most aggressive of of decks and hope to trade it off for an opposing one drop or an opposing two drop another kind of like classic card we'll look at in these archetypes is a, a four mana two four with reach so a giant spider let's say so how does that look in an aggro deck that's not really a card here right you have a four mana spell which is generally going to be like your curve topper in these aggro decks and it's too high of a cost for not enough power to attack, right? You're trying to curve out with this deck and put as much pressure on your opponent as possible. And a 2-4 with reach doesn't do that. So that's not really worth a card in that deck. In mid-range, this is fine. This is probably good. This can play sort of both sides of the coin. More often, it's going to be blocking. It's going to be on blocking duty. But a mid-range deck needs uh, some cards allocated to this is going to be on defense while I'm 
beating down with some evasive threats, let's say. And in control, this is where this four mana two four is really going to shine. This is probably going to provide that kind of situation we were talking about before with that virtual card advantage. Um, can potentially blank multiple creatures on your opponent's side of the battlefield while you're stabilizing and turning the corner to win the game. Yeah. Next card we're going to take a look at here is a plus two plus two combat trick. Let's say active heroism, although that gets a little more complicated. Just a generic uh, single white. <laughs> What's the thing from Rivals of Excellent? Oh, God. Moment of triumph. Thank you. Moment of triumph. Single white plus two plus two gain two life. That's a good clean example. Name that card. <laughs> so in an aggro deck, do you want a plus two plus two combat trick? Yes, absolutely. So you're frequently going to be able to cast your combat trick when your opponent's tapped out because ideally you're putting pressure on them, right? And the safest time to cast a combat trick is when your opponent's tapped out because you know they can't possibly have instant speed interaction to blow you out and get their own two for one. So you're mitigating the risk of your combat trick a lot if you manage to do it when your opponent's tapped out. So you get a clear out troublesome blockers and it enables often attacks for multiple creatures. So if you've got, you know, a 2-2, a 2-2, and a 3-2 on the battlefield and your opponent's got a 3-3 sitting over there, you can safely attack with all three of those creatures if you've got a plus two, plus two combat trick in your hand. So the combat tricks often essentially like turn into like pseudo removal spells in aggressive decks. So you frequently want those there. In mid-range, do you want a plus two, plus two combat trick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you're not excited about it again, but it's fine. It's going to enable attacks for your creatures. You could potentially use it to blank a removal spell that's damage-based from your opponent. I think it generally pulls its weight in a mid-range deck. In a control deck, probably not a card here. They're really not good combat tricks on blocks because you're incurring a lot of risk. So frequently, you know, if you're casting that into open mana from your opponent, assuming they're not going for that sweet, sweet F6 value... (laughs) You're really, really at risk of getting two for one by an instant speed removal spell. And generally, you're wanting to play bigger creatures than your opponent as a control deck. So you really aren't generally looking to augment them with a combat trick, I don't think. And I think that's a really great way to segue into how you can leverage cards to get two for ones in terms of, of combat. Magic in, in combat favors the defensive player in terms of blanking cards. So you can leverage your good defense to try to two for one your opponent with removal if they're forced to use their combat trick to punch through damage. And the reverse side of that is that offense can leverage this by forcing bad risky double blocks to try and get two for ones with combat tricks. So like on defense, you're using removal when those attacks and blocks look a little dicey. And on offense, you're trying to leverage the pump spells to push through that damage or to make those double blocks super unfavorable for your opponent. Yeah, I think, and we've already touched on this point a little bit, but I think it's really important to remember that not all cards are created equal, right? If you trade one for one with your opponent, somebody is probably coming out ahead in that exchange, even if it's like right. very, very slightly, like somebody wants that trade to happen and somebody probably doesn't want that trade to happen. I mean, there's probably circumstances where it is pretty equal for both players. I mean, like uh, trading like a bear for a bear, right? A 2-2 for a 2-2 is generally going to just be a wash for both players. Right. But other than that, someone's coming out ahead. Right. And I think the longer the game goes on, the more obvious it is who's coming out ahead. Like early mm-hmm. in the game, yeah, like a 2-2 for a 2-2 trade is probably pretty, pretty whatever. But other than that, I think you really need to be thinking critically about whether or not you want to make that one-for-one trade. So we're going to kind of sort of take a look at maybe when to seemingly make unfavorable one-for-one trades. So Andrew Cunha was on last week and he talked about, he brought up this example of a 2-2 and a 5-2. Oftentimes you're going to want to make 
seemingly unfavorable trades when you're behind and you really need to stabilize or you're way ahead and you need to push damage. So for example, if you're behind, you're the player with the 5-2 and your opponent's got that 2-2 that's attacking you and you're not going to be able to block that 2-2 any other way in the near future, you're just going to have to suck it up and block your 5-2 on their 2-2. And despite the fact that it feels bad, it's probably the right play for you. Or if you're way ahead and you need to push damage, let's say you've got two 3-3s and your opponent's got a 3-4, uh, but you really need to get in that three points of damage. Sometimes near the end of the game, you know, you got to play to your outs and maybe, you know, drawing some sort of a burn spell to your opponent's face. Like they're close to stabilizing. That's one of the only ways you're going to be able to win the game. Sometimes you need to attack those two three threes in your opponent's three four and chump attack just to get in that three damage. So there are times when you're going to need to make unfavorable trades and identifying those like you can't strictly play magic based on like trying to get two for ones all the time or trying to get card advantage you're going to have to identify i think in general that's a good way to go and if you've not thought about it that way before just starting to do that will probably help you out a lot mm-hmm. but i think really identifying those spots where it's right to make unfavorable trades for you is really important as well yeah and the last i think example about making those unfavorable trades is when your opponent has a big threat that you just need to deal with if you're going to win the game um, so we don't even have to get fancy with bombs like we can just think about colossal dreadmaw and how that often played out in rivals of ixalan so this is four green green for the six six with trample you often had to invest a couple resources to trade with dreadmaw so if that was a creature and a combat trick or two creatures to trade with it in combat something like that like maybe you got that one for one with an impale killing it but i felt like oftentimes we, we might have to have to invest a couple things into it and that's okay right like if that's your path to victory then taking that momentary resource setback or investing a couple resources in killing that Dreadmaw is what you need to do to win the game. That's totally fine. And maybe you can accrue that disadvantage or, or make up for that disadvantage somewhere else in the game. Maybe just by what we talked about, an explore trigger or a card that enters the battlefield and replaces itself, things like that. There are ways to track that. But I think that, as you said, if you haven't thought about this in, in Magic before, and I know there are those of you out there who haven't because I see these kinds of questions in Twitch chat or sometimes people like think things are are a blowout. And I'm not certainly not just referencing what Ben said at the start of the episode. But <laughs> no, but it's true. People in chat will just be like, oh man, wrecked. And I'm like, I don't feel that bad. Like this card already already did its work. Like this already did what I wanted it to do or it already provided me a full resource or, or whatever. Or, or this creature already got in for six points of damage. So it's done its thing. Like there are a lot of ways to think about it on the axes of actual cards as resources, life total and tempo. So your investment in those cards in terms of mana. So however you want to track those things or however those are those cards are going to fit into those different columns in the rubric, that's how I think you're going to start to get ahead in limited in, in both draft and in gameplay. Yeah, and I think when we took a look at cards in, I also think in deck building, there's a lot of things, you know, like when we're streaming, people link a deck in Twitch chat and say, well, hey, what do you think of this deck? Just making sure that your cards belong in your deck and are going yeah. to like start like, you know, if you put a card in your 23 that doesn't belong in your deck and doesn't pull its weight as a card just naturally, you're already setting yourself up at a disadvantage once the game starts. It's hard enough to get card advantage once the game starts. You definitely want to make sure you've got 23 actual cards that are all working cohesively before you go to start the game. So like the quickest thing I do when I scan through someone's deck, you know, I'm, I look and I think, is it aggro mid range or control? And given that, do all of these cards belong? And frequently, like it's pretty easy to pick out one or two cards that just don't belong in a control deck or don't belong in an aggro deck. So just making sure every card pulls its weight in whatever archetype you're trying to do. That's so true. I, I see that so often when we see decks posted in Twitch or in Discord, like, what is your deck's game plan? Like, sure, there are cards that are just like good 
in a vacuum. But then once you start to decide like a narrower game plan, or now we're talking about this color pair and this color pair's archetype in terms of like, am I red, blue control? Am I red, blue aggro, whatever? C red, one and a red for the aura plus two plus one and first strike is going to be good in one of those decks and going to be terrible in another one of those decks. And you can't just track like, well, this card was is good in this archetype or this card was, was good for me last time or whatever, or I, however you want to think about it. But there are really like easy ways to say like, well, that doesn't belong and that doesn't belong. And like, why is that card in your sideboard and not in your main deck? And that's all about like, not only thinking about a value of a card, but how it's going to fit in, in those three styles of decks. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. That's a good place to wrap us up here. Thank you as always to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. I still just even now 40 episodes in, I love hearing our outro music when I'm done editing the podcast. So good. Yeah, I agree. I often just listen to that. I just skip the whole episode and I just, <laughs> just go straight to the music. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you all want to get in touch with me or Ben, we are, we're everywhere. We're all over the internet. You can find us on Twitch. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Both of us are under those same handles on Twitter. Get at us on Twitter, either at Lord Tupperware or at Mr. Metronome or at the podcast, at Lords of Limited. Yeah, we've still got our Rivals of Ixalan treasure hunt going on. That is going to be wrapping up next week. And soon we are going to be getting into Dominaria Ooh, uh, previews. So you got about a week to get some more achievements done. And we will be announcing on next week's podcast the winners of the treasure hunt. So who, who those people are that win those four draft sets. Also, if you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, feel free to shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for hanging out, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. 